Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. No need to call the WCW hotline. We'll have all your juicy scoop right here tonight as Eric Bischoff is calling in to answer your questions. You listen to them, now hang out with us. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz Yes, hello, and welcome to After 83 Weeks. My name is Christy Olson. Let me introduce you to my wonderful panel who's hanging out with us here tonight. He actually runs the YouTube channel of most of your favorite wrestling veterans, including the 83 Weeks channel. Please say hello to Steve Kaufman. Hello, and it's great to finally appear on one of my channels. Yay! <laughs> this, is the ver- this is the very first time. Congratulations to you. Thank you. And also to this 13-year veteran of The Biz. He's been a manager a referee, a commentator, but we call him the host of AfterBuzz TV Smackdown After Show. It's Christian Rosenberg. Great to be here, yes. And I do have a 1-0 record in wrestling. Okay. Well, That's probably going to stay like that, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah. Let's hope. And uh, we do have an actual wrestler on the panel tonight. And uh, indie guy, shall we say, I think he's 1-1. One one. <laughs> so his, his career is <laughs> a, little more, a little more extensive, undefeated. All right, Devastator 2. You can call him George Hermosa. That's right. That's me. Next show, December 12th. I'm happy to be here. Welcome to the first ever podcast about a podcast. What we do here is break down all the juicy scoop from 83 weeks. You all hear Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. They talked all about Starcade 1996 this week. We got the revelations. We have some fan questions from you guys. And not only that, it is our big premiere, as you mentioned, right here on the 83 Weeks channel. YouTube.com slash 83 weeks. Yes. This is where the big boys play. Oh, I love that. that. Subscribe button right there. Working on that for months. <laughs> Literally months. Waiting that for that bit. moment. That moment to say we are where the big boys are playing. Got it. That's that's really awesome. And we do want to thank Conrad and Eric for having us here at a little special eight-week run on their channel. We love that. And as part of this, Eric Bischoff himself will be calling in to answer your questions. We've been asking for them on Twitter, Facebook. You can always use hashtag after 83 weeks or message any of us directly to get your questions in. Uh, but we have uh, we have a lot of time to break down the show before then. So stay tuned for Eric Bischoff. You can always catch us on Apple Podcasts. We're still there as well if you like to listen, but we are quite attractive, so make sure you subscribe <laughs> to the 83 Weeks channel. Stunning. We are stunning. stunning. shall we say. So, do you want to jump right into the episode? I do want to jump right in. You know what I loved about this one? Well, they're going to be celebrating Starcade all month long, we found out, which was I actually think was George Hermosa's prediction That's last right. week. I guessed it correctly. Where's my prize? No, nothing. You, you get to stay here. It's here. You get to be here. You get to talk to Eric Bischoff. Oh, you should tell him that you got it right. He got it. Tell him that you got it right. I just wanted that sound effect, to be honest with you. We don't have a prize prepared because when you said that, I was like, there's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you. You were right. So they're starting with 1996, which of course featured the big main event, Roddy Roddy Piper versus Hulk Hogan in the main event. And they did a great job, Eric Bischoff and Conrad, of setting up everything that was going down in WCW before leading up to Starcade, which is where one of my favorite parts of the episode and and kind of a fun thing that we hadn't heard about before, this 1-900 number. Hang on. I think I got it. 1-900-909-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-99-
Well, sure. it was the, the master plan of one Gene Okerlund, and we found out on the episode that he actually got a little cut of this. And when Bischoff breaks it down, it really makes a lot of sense. He's like, it didn't cost us anything. We needed some money. Were you guys as fascinated by this as I was? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I love hearing anything business-related that Bischoff has to mm-hmm. say because it's always so genius in my eyes. You know, dating back to, I think, the Pillman episode, why he explained why the, the blondes broke up, him and Austin. I thought that was genius. So now this is no different when he's talking about it pretty much cost them nothing uh, to do the hotline and pretty much it was pure profit I mean it was a no brainer and I love hearing this side of, of the, the business yeah it, it's new money and Gina's saying I'm going to spearhead it mm-hmm. okay so I'm going to make some money and you're going to do the work oh works for me let's do it well yeah I also think someone like me and Gene because he was talking, he's talked a lot about this episode in different places that he didn't do revenue shares with merch because there wasn't much revenue to share. So he gave people huge downside guarantees. I don't know if someone like Mean Gene would be worth as huge a downside guarantee that maybe an opportunity to have a regular job, but then to also build revenue for the company he gets to share in mm-hmm. is a good way to bring in someone like him who can Mean Gene can do more than just put over put over everyone on the on screen product. He can develop stuff like this to actually make more money for the company. Right. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't the only one working his entrepreneurial spirit, right? We hear this great story about how Hulk Hogan, I guess it's not so great for uh, for Mr. Hogan, but how he missed out on being <laughs> the George Foreman grill guy, I guess. But it's okay, because a few years later, he got the consolation prize of the Thunder hmm. Mixer. This was really interesting to me. I know we've all heard the story about... Um, Hulk missing out on the George Foreman grill before. Were, did this offer any revelations to you guys that you hadn't heard before? I think this was the more succinct version of the story I've heard, because if you hear Hogan tell it, depending on how and when, he'll be like, yeah, man, they called me, I was outside, and by the time I came in, they gave it to George Foreman. Whereas at least Bischoff is like, yeah, Hogan didn't get to his phone right away. I'm curious, and it's more a Hogan question, of how long that timeline was. Like, were they so antsy that they called Hogan, he didn't answer, and then they immediately called George Foreman? It had to have been at least a couple days. That's what I'm thinking, too. Because if you want Hogan, you're going to get Hogan, or at least wait... 48 hours right. to be like, oh, he must not be interested. I kind of agree with what you're saying. I mean, whenever Hogan tells a story, a lot of times it's like, all right, we get it, brother. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Just like like you said, if they wanted Hogan, what a missed call wouldn't have changed that. I exactly. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying he was never the first choice or was or wasn't. It just, I feel like there's a lot more to the story that, you know, maybe like he's working us, you know, like as or- if. Or maybe a lawyer that won't tell anyone actually has the answer. Yeah. That it's like, no, no, they came to me. I called six people on Hogan's level. George Foreman was one of them. George Foreman was the first person to come back with terms. And that's who we went with. I could see any side of that. But Hogan uh, likes to embellish the story, and like, I don't blame him. A part of me thinks that Hogan turned it down. A big part of me thinks that. And, oh, and now he won't so, admit it? But, but yeah, so now, what, what are you going to say 20 years later? Oh, yeah, I, I said no to it? No, you're going to say, oh, I missed the phone call. Like, I don't know. I just a, part, a big part of me thinks that he, he turned it down. Well, we do love to break down what we think is true and maybe a little stretch of the truth here. And I want to take a moment to talk to all you 83 Weeks fans out there. We love that you love Eric Bischoff's 83 Weeks podcast. And we love that you're watching our after show. Thank you so much. Please subscribe to 83 Weeks and like this video. Give it a thumbs up so we can keep bringing fan discussions to you every week. And if you love discussions about your favorite series, head over to AfterBuzz TV. We are the After Show Network. We call ourselves the ESPN of TV talk from wrestling shows for WWE Raw, SmackDown, NXT and every single pay-per-view as well as dramas, reality, sci-fi, series, and more. We got you covered. No network works harder to serve TV discussion fans. So to keep this show and others like it going, please head over to AfterBuzz TV and subscribe to a couple of our channels. and That'll help us suggest comment, uh, content that you're going to love, tailor-made just for you, and we can keep breaking down phenomenal content like After 83 Weeks. So thank you again for being the absolute best fans and for helping us continue to be the ESPN of TV talk. So let's get back to talking. Eric Bischoff was doing some talking of his own about Mr. (laughs) Vince McMahon. I absolutely (laughs) loved this little blurb. So apparently uh, EB sort of went off. I think the, uh, what is it, bird, I don't even know if I need to repeat it, bird face punk. It's going to be a shirt Did now. Did you call him an ostrich face punk? Or people? I, a bunch of people are saying ostrich now. Because ostrich is what's on the t-shirt now. Oh, okay. Then, yeah. Yes. And he kind of explained, he was like, well, Vince must have really pissed me off to make me say something like that. But it wasn't what Conrad thought. Did you guys all find this as juicy as I did? I just want to know what it was. If he can figure it out. Maybe we should ask him. Well, what? now that he's had a couple days to think, maybe yeah. it's come to him. 
Okay. Oh, like what? Bischoff what couldn't him? think of what it was that might have upset him. I, yeah. I don't know. I think he kind of he kind of walked it back a little. He kind of walked that mystery back a little, where he said, like, you know what? It kind of fit. It fit his on-screen personality of like him versus the world. Mm-hmm. To say, you know what? Vince McMahon doesn't remember me. Well, he's terrible, <laughs> and I'm going to take him down. Like I, that's how it felt to me. Uh. That it, it fit his persona, and then he got a chance to get ink saying that. And then that, that saying that is a good way to get published. That's, That's true. true. That is absolutely true. And there was a really cute segue that I was going to say. Oh, well, that's not all he was saying, guys. Wasn't that deep? I know you love it. Um, let's talk what about just happened? Let's talk about <laughs> Eric Bischoff saying that the WCW product at this time was superior to WWF. It was a short blurb in the episode, but I think that's a major claim to make. And is this just what you would expect to hear from the guy who was running WCW at this time? Do you think that Eric Bischoff really believes that? Is it true? Do we believe that? I agree with it. I, I mean, think look, it was. You yeah. look at 97, 90, or 96, 97, from top to bottom, with the exception of maybe like the year 2000, like nobody can touch the roster of WCW from top to bottom, like from as far as roster-wise, as far as talent, as far as name, name-worthy people. Like there's nobody that can touch that roster. So for him to say that, Plus, you're getting talent from New Japan Pro Wrestling. Absolutely. I think he had every right to say that he had the best product because um, he had the best roster. Be- yeah, between between the Cruiserweights, the people from New Japan, the the names that came from WWF, obviously the names that WCW built themselves. And then also when he gets in, I don't know if you're going to uh, point out, when he gets in like the Mortis stuff. So like, yeah. like you know, there's still kind of the out of the way, more video game style mm-hmm. characters. So he had some of Mortis. everything. I loved Mortis. Um, so he had a little bit of everything to grab any type of wrestling fan. Well, WWF in 1996 did not have that. Mm-hmm. I always thought that WWF had the absolute best wrestler at the time, but from the overall just roster, like WCW could not be touched no. at all. I, I'm also in agreement, but I to to play devil's advocate, he wouldn't. Eric wouldn't be the best person to say that. He was obviously a little close. Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I, a little, a little. But biased. he was right. But he, he happens to be wasn't right. wrong about it. He but, happens to yeah. be right. But, he, but us he being is unbiased now confirm what yeah. he yes. says. Like, but but at the, even in that case, like he's not going to say I don't have the best product. Like you know, you're just not going. to... I mean, it's one of those where you know I, I, I follow a lot of MMA. So you, for example, you'll see Conor McGregor's coach will say Conor has got the best boxing. Of course, you're going to say that about your 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 guy. You know, sure. it's like I, I get it. It just I, I think it's silly, but in this case, he was absolutely right about yeah. what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about Van Hammer and David <laughs> Taylor oh, and uh, what goes down at Christmas time at DDP's house. This was a really fun story. Was this something that was on your guys' radar before no this? No, no idea. No, this is the only time that I've ever been intrigued of a Van Hammer story. So <laughs> <laughs> your favorite Van Hammer story? It, it's my. It's number one on my Van Hammer story <laughs> list. What What was it about this story that really spoke to you guys? You guys butt kick. Well, that that not only did he get his butt kicked, but Bischoff approved of it and wanted to give Dave Taylor a raise. <laughs> I also like the subtle dig, too, of like, well, I don't think we were really going to hire him anyway. But after that, we definitely weren't going to hire him. <laughs> but he still got hired anyways. Yeah, well, he was still there was for years. The well, he came in the flock. You're and then right. he was still was there funny. after that. Then he was a hippie, and then he was another weird guy. Fair. He was just there. That statement. Oh, yeah, he was up. in the MIA, the Misfits in Action, and and then he was after that too, in yeah. some almost like golf like thing. I don't know. Van Hammer was one of those guys You're where he about like the wall. No, Van Hammer. Okay. Van Hammer was there towards the end. Also, <laughs> <laughs> I know this. I don't understand why he was there. He, he's one of those guys. Who's like, how is he still on payroll? How is he still getting matches? There's a lot of people. How is he on, on pay per view? Like Lanny Poffo being on the payroll. But, but no, but the genius, genius was good. But, he, but he, I, I'm not saying he's not great. But he never even showed up on TV, and he made six figures. I mean, I want that job. Yeah, I do. Hey, you see a couple people's friend. Yeah. One guy's brother. Yeah, yeah. You just have to be a real actual brother. <laughs> well, another guy who wasn't getting a lot of attention was Chris Canyon. And one of the things I love about this show is that it gives Bischoff a platform to to praise a guy like Chris Canyon. Someone who we haven't heard a lot about, who maybe we don't know. I mean, we, know a ton, but we don't know a ton about him. And it was really interesting to hear about the Ready to Rumble movie and um, what a kind of a low budget but huge deal it was to them back then. I like hearing 
hearing about the sort of the mm-hmm. other the entertainment aspect of this as well and it reminds you that they're trying to run an entertainment company mm-hmm. and you need guys like Chris Canyon he was one of those unsung heroes I don't know if anybody remembers it, but there was like a Jesse the Body Ventura TV movie like in mm. 99 and oh I remember that Canyon this. was I think he was the guy that, that pretty much put the, the stunt coordinator part part of the wrestling part I'm of pretty it. sure you're right you know and, that, and just like he was one of those guys where you can always count on him plus he was his I mean they call him the innovator of offense for a reason he was amazing I thought Mortis was fantastic. I think I think that was a missed opportunity as far as like action figures and like because that the detail that went into that costume was to me was insane. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yep. He, I hear, I, he's great. I also think we're having a lot you, of agreement this week. You, well, you look at <laughs> I'll, I'll change that another. Okay. Yeah. You look at guys like Chavo Guerrero, who is I I don't know if he's a head stunt director or one of the stunt directors on Glow, which is going to have its third season oh, soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I think. I think you can see Hollywood is going to have some wrestling, mm-hmm. and you would need guys. You would need guys to train the non wrestlers to look like wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Sonny Ono for just a second. Let's do it. Of course, he did appear later on in the actual uh, pay per view. But how <laughs> he comes up in this episode of eighty three weeks is that Conrad ran into him, or was hanging out with him not too long ago, and they ran into an old friend of Eric Bischoff's. I give these guys so much credit for just doing this stuff on the air. Like, they could have had this conversation before they started the show, or Bischoff could say, hey, hey, I, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that on on camera, on the show. But, like, he just goes for it. <laughs> you know, Conrad made him guess. He finally figured it out. And it sounds like he had a lot of fun with this friend. Mm-hmm. I think this is what Conrad learned from the Pritchard show, too. This, like, the offhand stuff. That's kind of them on a call is actually the stuff we really, really want. Oh, for sure. Because it, it felt so genuine that they were just having a conversation. It, it was it was a genuine minor rib that yeah. he was he was putting them on blast yeah. during the podcast, <laughs> and and pretty much Conrad was probably like, I'm not going to edit this out. By the way, I'm, I'm just mean. gonna I'm just gonna post it. And, was, and it was hilarious. I think I was the only one who didn't care. <laughs> no, honestly, because really? I, I thought it was, the girl was going to be someone significant. I'm like, oh, it's someone I don't know. I don't uh, care. Probably someone's grandma. How about that? What if you were listening and he, all of a sudden they drop your grandma's name? Boys. <laughs> that'd be awesome. <laughs> Considering who my grandma was, that'd be awesome. I'd be like, whoa. That kid's a big fan of 83 Weeks, yeah. and all of a sudden he calls her, Grandma, I have questions. Yeah. So many questions about the martial arts tournament days. You never know. Well, I'm wondering if you guys had questions about David Sammartino. <laughs> and um, we, he came up a little bit in this episode. And Bischoff basically explained, he said, you know, David had personal issues. And he didn't quite have it in the ring. Was Were you guys curious about what had happened with David Sammartino? Was this- I mean, we... We we hear there obviously there are certainly some exceptions to the rule, but there are so many people who try to you know make it in wrestling because their their father was such you know a legendary figure, and obviously there's so much pressure on them. I mean between members of Von Erichs, um, mm-hmm. I mean uh, that was the first one that popped in my mind, but um, David Flair mm-hmm. uh, and and among amongst others, obviously Randy Orton succeeded, Charlotte succeeded. There have been success stories of them, but I mean things like this. It, they're, they're sad, but you know they happen more than you would think. It's a, every wrestler you see on television probably has a child, and then like a higher percent than you would think normal are trying to also get in the business. But you don't see that many of them on TV today, and there's right. a reason. Mm-hmm. Only so many people make it on TV in wrestling in general. So I, I on statistics, it's not that difficult to really hear this story and be like, well, no, like. But you hear San Martino, and you're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. He wasn't just absolute royalty from, like, his first bump wasn't amazing and all <laughs> better than all other bumps. The bump of all bumps. All right, guys, it's time to set the stage. We're going way back, back in time to 1996 for the big WCW Ooh. Starcade pay-per-view event. Get your popcorn, sit down in your comfy chair. And, Can uh, I put on my No Fear shirt? I had a lot of No Fear shirts back in so 96. Many. Yes. Okay. Maybe your Jinko jeans? Nice. That might be a little early for that. <laughs> What's Jinko jeans? Whew, you, well, let's let's wow. put it this way. They would have looked ridiculous on some Mexican minis. <laughs> oh, yes. In a Mexican mini match. I'd like to hear about this because Bischoff kind of surprises me sometimes when he says, like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable, or I don't really like this. Or, of course, we were talking about, like, hot lesbian action. You know, he really mm-hmm. was honest about kind of that kind of giving him the heebie-jeebies now. And we, we learned that this Mexican mini-match made him a little bit uncomfortable. I was surprised to hear that. I, I always felt about, like, mini-matches in general that 
on paper, I'm like, I yes, people that size should be able to have their own division and do incredible things. And then you see how it's ever always been presented in wrestling. And you're like, oh, we're making fun of them. That's terrible. Let's stop doing that. I mean, flipping over to WWF at the time, because I think it was a month later, they had like Mini Mankind and Mini Vader. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> I, I, that was, I, I don't know. I, I want to see more of that Mini kind. I don't know. Just It was fun. I remember watch. there were, at one point, Smackdown. Yeah, the Macho Midget. At one point, SmackDown was trying to do a mini's division, complete with yes, Teddy Long. I remember holding, that. Teddy Long holding juniors. a belt. Or they're going to call him Juniors, and the only thing you wound up with was Teddy Long holding a belt, looking at a bunch of weird minis, and you had Hornswoggle out of that, and then you had Mini Mini um, Mini Kane, Mini Boogeyman. Oh, Mini Boogeyman. Mini Boogeyman was awesome. Like sometimes it works if it's that not. That match was awesome. Like the if you don't Boogeyman versus Hornswoggle. Yes, but yeah, if you don't play it for straight up laughs at them, it's pretty good. But I don't know if there are that many. If what we've learned, what we've learned about mini wrestlers is, I'm curious if there are that many in the world to have just a legitimate. I'm sure there are. Didn't they? We've have made like a hey, hey, we've made the evolution of women's wrestling. Now this is the next. This is the next phase. Is this my mantle? I think minis. they. Had, I mean, <laughs> I want to ask Bishop. I think they had like a, he produced like a micro championship wrestling. Real? Oh, then. I, could be, I think it was a, a Bischoff Hervey thing. Let's put it on the list. Well, yes, we put that on the list for when he joins us here in very shortly. So let's talk about the Malenko Ultimate Dragon match. Mm. Kind of the the big um, detail that Eric dropped here was that he said, you know, Malenko is one of the most underrated wrestlers of the last twenty years. I he is one. He is one thousand percent correct. Yeah, he's preaching to the choir. Yeah, this wasn't I, a surprise. I, I have. Oh, oh, I'm gonna hear that in a minute. But <laughs> I, I've honestly. I mean, there are a number of guys that you can say are underrated, and they're deservedly so. To me, I honestly feel, in my personal opinion, William Regal, Re, William Regal, and Dean Malenko are the most underrated performers on like WWE, WCW in my lifetime, and I'm 35 years old. Uh, because He's not going to sign you to NXT, Rosenberg. I'm not expecting Your days are well, I have a question. I'm not <laughs> expecting Stop a question. Up. When you say underrated, like you mm-hmm. mean didn't achieve. Because everybody knows they're great. Yeah. The underrated would be like nobody knows that they're great. Like everybody knows that they're great. But what do you mean? Like they should have been main event level, I mean? Yes. Okay. Well, also, I think underrated means. When you talk about like who are some of the best wrestlers of that time frame, people will say Jericho. Oh, they'll, well, they'll say Jericho. They'll say Owen Hart. They'll say I mean, there, there's say so many people, other good names. But they'll say people who were main events and world champions and mm. top of the card for a very long period of time. So by underrated in this sense, he means someone like Dean Malenko, who, for him to say this, he also let Dean Malenko go like uh, four or five years later. He wasn't there. Uh, but fair. like, but but I I, I was going to say but just because it's easy to look back and say, oh man, I was the biggest Malenko fan. Oh, Eddie was wrong. Eddie was great. How come you didn't push them then? 96, 97. You didn't give them anything. You kind of kept them in that mid Also, status. to be fair, at that point, maybe he didn't know what he had. Maybe. And then looking they, back. That's what I'm just saying. It's up. easy to look back on it and say, wow, these guys were so great. And know? it's and it's all about you know, like the little things that really put a guy over. Because Dean Malenko, he never posed. Mm-hmm. He never didn't, he didn't do much talking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but like when you watch him to the ring, he's he just walks and he's staring at his opponent. All he's doing is tightening yeah. his wrist tape. Mm-hmm. And and from that, I mean, Bishop talking about like, you're hooked. I'm like, I'm like this guy means business. Like, I want to see what this guy's going to do, because he's completely serious, he's focused, mm-hmm. and he's ready to freaking fight. It reminds me a lot of uh, Chris Candino in a very early part would call himself Mr. No Gimmicks Needed. That he would just mm-hmm. be Chris Candino, I'm here, I'm a wrestler, you bring the gimmicks, you bring the fun, you bring everything, I'm going to be the wrestler. And I think Dean Malenko is like a, a throwback to that kind of style. of like it, And it works, it would work best in a place like WCW, where you have someone like, mm-hmm. like Mortis, who is amazing and looks great and like definitely an action figure but might not like Dean Malenko makes way more sense in that universe really yeah yeah that guy's fun but like Dean Malenko's gonna wreck you Mm -hmm. We also got a J-Crown uh, match on Starcade 1996. It sounds like we'll be hearing a lot more about Bischoff and his relationship with New Japan in these coming episodes in the next few weeks, so we'll talk about that then. He told this great story on this episode of taking Muhammad Ali to Japan. This was just absolutely incredible, unbelievable. I'm not certain. I meant to I meant to look it up if Bischoff has told this story before, but it didn't sound like he had. And I was absolutely blown away by this. Just to, to recap, he's said when they went to Japan, Muhammad Ali kind of pulled him aside at one point and asked Bischoff if he thought that Muhammad Ali had embarrassed himself at the uh, Olympic ceremony, lighting lighting the torch and all that. I mean, an iconic American moment and something I think we would all be shocked to, to mm. have that question 
been posed to us. I mean, th- this is one of the best stories that have been told on this show. Yes. Right? This mm-hmm. is for sure one of the best. And, like, for context for maybe younger viewers, Muhammad Ali lighting the torch for America at the Olympics means so much because Muhammad Ali at one point was stripped of his world titles because he wouldn't fight in Vietnam. And that's only, like, a small portion of the story that is Muhammad Ali in America. Right. That it all played into that one moment at the Olympics on a world stage. And I don't... It's... I, I've never heard this story, and it's kind of shocking that he felt he embarrassed America by happening to be succumbing to his athletic, like his career as an athlete. And that's it, really what it is. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of the most iconic images in the history of American sports mm. and world sports, really. And so, I mean, yeah, the fact that you know this larger in life, you know, you want the definition of charisma. You look at Muhammad Ali, but him to confine confide and and have that type of question for Eric uh, was was remarkable mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well I love to hear them touch as well on the Medusa and Akira match from Starcade 1996 because we again I, I've mentioned this a couple times I'm not I'm not just clickbaiting everybody by saying hot lesbian action a million times on the show but we've been talking <laughs> a lot about about that I think there was another incident a couple weeks ago we had to talk about that was um where women's wrestling was back at that time. But this match between Medusa and Akiro was an absolute actual wrestling yeah. match. Even just, I don't know if everyone went back and watched this, you can do that on the WWE Network, but to even just see Medusa come out in like real clothes. Since we've, been, <laughs> we've been seeing so many thonged women as I, as I go back and watch what they talk about on this show. So it was really cool to hear him highlight that. Especially because you flip over and there was no women's wrestling on WWF. It was Sable, mm-hmm. Marlena, Sunny, and the Funkettes. That's it. And oh, they were funk all gets. I forgot about that. Well, and they were all valets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm saying, there all was the no women, women's wrestling. On the women, all, all the women on the show yeah. were. That's why it was such a big deal. Supplementary to the men. It was such a big deal when like the Sable Bomb happened. But and mm-hmm. at least for this match at Starcade, no, here's a real wrestle match with two actual wrestlers, and we're going to give them a little bit of time and. They're, they're not going to do HLA. They're going to wrestle. <laughs> and wrestle, they did. That was a fun one to go back and watch. I definitely suggest it to everyone. Guys, do you know what we are? Host? We are a four-man commentary team. Yes, oh. we are. Four-person. <laughs> four-person. Hey, I'm... Okay, yeah, we're a four-person. <laughs> Breaking news, which, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm trying to think which wrestler, when we did intergender matches, asked me to say six-person match instead of six-man at NXT. And if I remember that by the end of this episode, I will share that with you. I think it was Nikki Cross. But uh, we did hear a little bit about this four-man commentary team that we get for a couple of matches. And this was a rare chance for Bischoff to kind of highlight the guys that were sitting in commentary table and talk about how important that is and how much they helped to tell the story. I'm sure you appreciated that as I a did. pro wrestling commentator. Um, you know, and and I've done, you know, three-person uh, commentary tables, and I've done three-person with a tag team sitting in, so we have up to five <laughs> people on commentary. It's not fun. I've also done it by myself. Also not fun. <laughs> Um, but I, I really, I really found it interesting, um, you know, how he was praising Mike Tenay, and I, and I do agree with him for the most part with what he was saying because I think Mike Tenay, um, another underrated person as far as obviously he's a wealth of knowledge, is why they call him the professor. He is an excellent color commentator, but because of all that knowledge and stuff, to me, when he does the main play-by-play, it does not. He does not nearly shine as well I as agree. he does in the color mm-hmm. position, um, like Shivani, play-by-play guy. Yes, Tenay color commentator guy and he's great at it so yeah that's why I'm going to flip to TNA with Mike TNA as the main play-by-play guy hated it, it, didn't, it did, I, I don't know if I'll say hate I but hate it def- it. he definitely wasn't nearly as good as he was in this type of position well and Mike TNA prepares like a play-by-play man he knows who everyone yes. is he knows their height their weight their, like where they went to college all that stuff but he works way better he works way better not as a play-by-play right. man, but he has to prep like one which mm-hmm. is really weird yeah. it's weird I, as I said it I'm like that's a strange way to put it but it is true <laughs> That he's prepared and has the facts a play-by-play man would have, but then mm-hmm. he doesn't use them, mm. or he does. He it doesn't play by. We get what you're saying. Thank you. I'm just going to talk in circles until <laughs> someone stops me. Talking in circles. That might be the worst gimmick ever. No, according to Bischoff, Jeff Jarrett had Whew. the worst gimmick ever. I mean, we know Bischoff hates the, uh, shall we say, over gimmick as over gimmickization. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> but to call Jeff Jarrett the worst gimmick ever. What did you guys think? That's a lot in WCW if he was the worst gimmick ever. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Um, I I was just more concerned with with this match because 
it was an ODQ match, and it really wasn't any type of issue until the very end. But but the way to um, actually, we might want to ask Eric this because I don't think you really touched on it. Um, what do you thought? Because Sullivan hits Benoit outside of the camera shot. Mm-hmm. Like we don't see, we see Arn, Arn Anderson interfere, right. and at that same exact moment. It was when Sullivan hit, and so you didn't see it really until you just saw the remains of the chair until you actually saw the replay. Yeah, it's it feels like the match was booked not knowing necessarily it was an ODQ match. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, well, the ref can't see that. And then they just kind of, no, it's just an ODQ, and then they never make the change maybe. And then Mongo showed up. Well, of course. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> why, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? Let's talk about the um, Scott Hall-Kevin Nash tag team uh, match against Ming and Barbarian. This was interesting because Conrad and Bischoff sort of um, disagree at the at the beginning. Yeah. And Bischoff kind of had me convinced by the end. He said, hey, this is not a misuse of Hall and Nash because Ming and Barbarian, they looked great and they actually made you believe that maybe they could win. Maybe they were going to walk out of there with the WCW Tag Team Championship titles. Once he explained it, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm on board with this match now. I think a good example contemporary would be, remember, I guess it was two takeovers ago, or it was Aleister Black and Lars Sullivan? Mm-hmm. And yeah. walking into that match, you're like, well, Lars Sullivan's not going to beat Aleister Black. Aleister Black just became champion, I believe. So, like, we're just I in... thought you were going to say the other way around. What? Oh, that Lars Sullivan, or oh, Aleister that... Black wouldn't beat Lars Sullivan? Yeah. Wait, what? No, oh. I, I saw that oh, match. Uh-huh. Disagreement oh, on wow. this panel. Wow. No, I immediately was like, no, all the all the all the eggs are in the Alistair Black basket until he's ready to come up. That's that was that was my thought heading into that match. Maybe I have it wrong, but that's truth to the, <laughs> that's this funny. booking and this comparison I'm making is if you as long as you believe, as long as you suspend your disbelief that a it's not just a predetermined show, but b that the person who will likely not win might win. They're doing it. They're doing it. I think it's just kind of the build-up. I mean, you have probably the two most important acquisitions in, his, in, in, in wrestling at that time period within the span of like three, four years uh, over Hogan. And I'm like, I don't know, they were just in a match with Ming and Barbarian. I mean, I, I agree. Like, I think there was no way anybody thought that Ming and Barbarian should win. Th- not saying looking about the back, match itself, I, but like, just like... Yeah, but looking, kind of there. looking back, but Ming and Barbarian were bad at... I loved Ming and Barbarian, but I think, especially I think, Ming. I think, I agree with Conrad, I think it would have made more sense had Hall and Ash maybe would have uh, faced and defeated Harlem Heat at Starcade for the WCW titles. No, that's true. Yeah, that's. But I think. But once again, that's looking back in 1996. We can't do a poll, but I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't resoundingly like, oh, Hall and Nash are going to win. Like I think the majority of people who watched that match in '96 mm-hmm. had some level of suspension of disbelief of like, Hall and Nash might lose. These yeah. guys are incredible. Hall and Nash don't need to win. That's right. They may not have been able to suspend their disbelief during the Eddie Guerrero and DDP match. As usual, Bischoff is a little hard on DDP, but says that he is headed towards some change. Mm. They also talk about Lex Luger versus the Giant. Nothing too earth-shattering there. Let's jump right in to our main event of the night. Roddy Roddy Piper versus Hulk Hogan. Was there any um, revelations in this in this for you guys? Well, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, was it not too much? Because I know they kind of went into detail about Piper uh, a few weeks ago, you know, like a, like a couple months ago when we first started the show, right? Uh, so I mean, I think they were just kind of recapping. I know they do a lot of like, well, if you want to hear more, you can hear it on the archives, you know. But uh, so no, nothing new. I mean. Okay. What I, about I, Bischoff's um, opinion that the fan reaction? That's is what, what I was going to say, and and, and that's true, and and it also kind of goes back with with the Luger match as well. The fans are the ones who really made that mm-hmm. Luger match and the Piper Hogan match because yeah, mm-hmm. I, I rewatched uh, Stark and Six over the weekend, and I was just like, wow, this Piper Hogan match is not that good, <laughs> <laughs> but. The crowd kept me in it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the magical things about live wrestling crowds. They can do that, even if it's the worst match ever. This wasn't the worst match ever, <laughs> but like even if, if as long as they're into it, then you at home get into it because the commentators are also into it, mm-hmm. and you're just driven more and more. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, um, I like. Well, I also <laughs> like. I liked the Meltzer ran as well about how Meltzer specifically about Piper's promo. That, that uh, Meltzer said Piper's promo wasn't on task. It wasn't selling the match. And then... Who cares? And right? then I, I'm on Bischoff's side here. Yeah, I mean, I watched it today and I was just like, you just listen. You yeah. just, all, all you can really do is look and listen when when and, Roddy has his mouth And it open. wasn't a free... I'm, I'm with Eric on this. It wasn't a free TV promo. 
to sell a match. The match you, we already have your money. <laughs> yeah, it's in the middle of the pay per view. It's in the middle. What are we promote? Like this is this is what you paid for. You paid for Roddy Piper giving you something else mm-hmm. that isn't promoting the match. <laughs> That's right. Well, he also mentions that uh, Hulk and Roddy were really different guys. By the time they got to WCW, they got along. There was no drama, shall we say, between the two of them. Is that something that you that makes sense to you now when you hear him say that? I, like, I, could you tell on on camera that these guys I are? I cool? thought they were boys. Like, I never I never thought of them to have like friction. Like, you'd always hear stories about Hogan and Randy. But I never thought that about Hogan and Piper. Like, I, I feel like there yeah, was. I never really heard. There, it. I, I feel like there was always this camaraderie between them. Like I, don't, I never, I never looked at it as they had heat with each other. Yeah. He was implying that sort of, wasn't he? That they hadn't gotten. I along think it might have well been previously. I think it might have been just because that's how great their feud was in the mid '80s in the WWF. Mm. But I know. I, I think it goes to like that's how good friends they were. Is that they knew how to kind of be the yin to each other's yang. I think it could have been more so how maybe they became friends towards the latter end of their careers, mm-hmm. but they still have the respect as far as working with each other in the 80s. While, like, all the stories that we hear with Hogan and Savage, they are friends, then they hate each mm-hmm. other, then they're friends again, <laughs> then they respect each other, then they despise each other, then, you know, and, and so on and so forth. <laughs> and so forth. And do you guys have anything that you'd like to add about this uh, episode of 83 Weeks? Uh, just stop to ask Eric. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. it's a couple of it was there. enjoyable because this was really, and I mean, Conrad said at the very beginning of the show, a real big turning point as far as the ratings went the following mm-hmm. Nitro after, mm-hmm. yeah. where this is where WCW really started their dominance between Sting showing up in the Luger match, Piper beating Hogan, but non-title, Giant making the babyface turn. Mm-hmm. This was a fantastic overall pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would give it a nine like Bischoff did, <laughs> but it really was one that really helped lead the way for them to have such a dominant 97. But you look at that pay-per-view, it had a little bit of everything. It did. It really had a little bit of everything. Yeah. Isn't that what we want as wrestling yes. fans? Yeah, absolutely. We always complain about, oh, Raw is too this, or it's too comedic, or whatever. It's like, well, three hours this, every this pay-per-view had a little bit of everything, and it was great. <laughs> That's right. And now let's give these fans what they want. I assume they've heard enough of us all yapping our traps. They don't want us? I mean, they want us. Okay. Plus, oh, okay. the host of 83 Weeks, Eric Bischoff, who we will be back with in just a moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back to After 83 Weeks with Christy Olsen. We have someone very important joining us now. He is the host of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Please welcome Eric Bischoff to the show. And the crowd goes wild. (laughs) Thank you so much for calling in today, Eric. Uh, The fans have some burning questions for you, and uh, we really appreciate landing here on your channel and getting this opportunity with you. Well, Christy, this is our channel. This is ours, not mine. And I'm really looking forward to this, too. This is different. It's It should be fun. And I get a chance to talk to somebody other than Conrad. I'm tired of him beating my ass every week. <laughs> well, we can certainly understand that. And I want to jump right into this burning question. I think this will make all the headlines. Rob Parks Uh-oh. wants to know, Eric, did you have a Thunder Mixer? I did not. You never got one? For shame. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to burn in hell. Well, for shame for Hulk Hogan for not giving yes, you Hogan one. Yes, Hogan should have gave you one. He's cheaper than people think. He's tight. <laughs> He's tight. No, I, I, I somehow I missed that one. <laughs> Well we, well, we love to hear that he's tight. There's that juicy scoop that we were hoping to get from you. So there how you about uh, another one from Quizmaster Flash? He said, in reference to your comments this week about Jimmy Hart, do you think that kind of the same thing is happening now with Drake Maverick and AOP in the WWE? Well, I'm not sure what the comment was that he was referring to it, so it's it's hard that, for me to really to respond to that question. That Jimmy Hart um, made the tag team look less serious? Yeah, I mean, I always think that's a risk, you know, and and it's funny because, you know, wrestling is such a generational thing and we all tend to um, gravitate towards or look back fondly to the things that we enjoyed when wrestling was the most important part of our lives. Now, for me, that's obviously, uh, even though I've watched it all my life, it's obviously the mid-late 90s. And just my sensibility is that generally, with the exception of Paul Heyman, who's a major exception... Mm. Managers don't do much for talent nowadays, um, and it does tend to make me take people less seriously. I still love believability. I still love to to lose myself in what I'm watching and allow myself to pretend 
it's real. Just like I do when I'm when I watch anything else. If I watch a drama, I know that it's all scripted. I know you know nobody's really going to be falling out of the airplane at thirty three thousand feet. <laughs> I know all that, but I still, if it's done well, I still enjoy it because it I get lost in it. So when I see things that distract me, like managers, most often, um, it kind of takes me out of the moment. My own opinion. Some people Fair. love them. Who are some of the wrestlers that you think are really given believability right now? Who helps you suspend that disbelief whenever you watch? Um, Braun, for sure. You know, and I know this is going to sound contradictory, but I, I really dig Dolph Ziggler. I've been saying that now for about a year and a half whenever I do interviews and promos. Because when I think of the roster, you know, and I don't watch Monday Night Raw or SmackDown on a regular basis. I tune in, drop in if I hear about something coming up with somebody that I know or whatever. Um, but whenever I see um, Dolph, I believe. You know, and part of it is because I know his background. You know, he, he he's like Kurt Angle in the sense that he can be a very comedic character, you know, w one minute, and he can be a believable badass if he needs to be the next. Right. And and I kind of dig that. That's To me, that's believable. That's right. cool. That's cool. We got another fan question coming at you. At Gutter Snipe said, are we ever going to get a never effing happened shirt? In the style of ECF and W, I think is what he was trying to get at. Oh, um, you know, that's a Conrad call. Yeah. Uh, Conrad is our chief uh, fashion designer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all of the T-shirt ideas are cranked out of that, you know, mastermind uh, in Huntsville, Alabama. So, I'll, you know, I'll run that by Conrad. That's Makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah another maybe little money-making venture. You mentioned another one on the show this week that you were maybe going to start teaching promos on Patreon. Is that something that you're that you're serious about, and and why not go and do that at, at wrestling schools or or even open your own promo school? Mm. Um, one is I hate to travel. Okay. And two is I just want to do it for fun. I don't want to. I don't want. Once something becomes your job, it tends to quit being fun. And at this stage of my life, I'm trying to do the things I really just enjoy doing. And as far as teaching on 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 Patreon, yeah, I am thinking about that. I'm very serious about it, but I don't want to start it till I've thought it through and have. I don't want to say a syllabus because that makes it sound like, like a college course, but I like to have a really good framework of how I would like to communicate what I think is the best way for young talent to approach interviews because that's one of the things that, first of all, it's subjective. Everybody has their own idea of what they like in a promo and the best way to accomplish it. I only know what really worked well for me and how I was able to take the written word and whenever I could, whenever it was up you know, the opportunity was there, improv it and make it my own and still achieve whatever the writers wanted to achieve at the end of it. Um, I also had the ability to memorize a script pretty quickly because oftentimes, particularly in WWE, because that's where I had to stick to a script, right? Mm -hmm. In WCW, you know, who was going to fire me <laughs> for, for, for going off script? So, but in WWE, I learned very quickly uh, because I think I had the training, you know, I learned so much improv and I learned without even knowing I was learning it, the structure of a good promo. And when you see the structure in your head, it's like a blueprint. It's easy to look at the written word and go, okay, this is act one. This is my transition. This is act two. This is act three. And they want me to punch the end. It becomes a lot easier to memorize copy when you look at it in terms of a breakdown or act one, act two, act three. So, yeah, I'm going to do it just by virtue of answering this question. I'm getting excited about it again. <laughs> but I just, I just want to make sure I've got my, my stuff together before I kick it off. That's cool. Well, I learned a lot from you in this TED Talk that you did recently that just mm. went up online. Everyone can catch it on YouTube where you compared professional wrestling to the current news media and the political climate we're in right now. Really some genius stuff. But the first two to two and a half minutes is a little uncomfortable. It seems like the crowd there is not uh, maybe know a lot about professional wrestling. They didn't catch on to what you were doing there. You came in and healed it up. What was going through your mind during those first couple minutes when it was admittedly a little awkward? You know, it was really funny because um, I knew that I was going to give this TED Talk back in July or August, right? Um, and I had been thinking about what I wanted to do. I didn't, you know, start working on it back in July or August. I'm, I'm not that way. Um, but 
uh, about two or three weeks before um, I was supposed to go to Naperville to do this, I started really thinking it through. And then, of course, I started laying it out on paper the way I do, not not in detail, but just kind of an outline form, I guess would be the best way to describe it. So I had laid it out. I, I put it off to the last minute because I do that. And I flew to Chicago from my home here in Wyoming. And I thought, well, I'll just work on it on the plane. And I did on my iPad. And then I fell asleep. Well, let me take the. I worked on it on the airplane, and then I took my iPad and slipped it in the front seat pocket in front of me, thinking I was going to get back to it in a few minutes, Uh-oh. and I fell asleep. I didn't wake up till the plane touched down. I got in like at midnight or one in the morning, so you know we hit the runway and everybody's scrambling for the stuff, and I scrambled for my stuff, and guess what I left behind? Oh, all my notes, right? <laughs> so. I went, oh, what am I going to do? And I knew I wasn't going to get my laptop or my uh, iPad back fast enough. So I just said, you know what? I'm just going to wing it. Wow. And I completely, I completely changed the, everything I was doing. And I thought, you know, I called my wife because I, she's got really good instincts. And I said, Lori, I don't think anybody's ever opened up a TED Talk in the history of TED Talks by healing on the audience. Hmm. I mean, I watched, I watched quite a few of them, you know, thinking about how to present my material. Yeah, that's a safe bet. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. And then it became, do I tell the producer? Because the, the guy who put that all together, his name is Arthur. You know, he and I developed a relationship. And I thought, man, if I should I give him a heads up? Because if I just go out on the stage and start healing on everybody, either he's going to come out or you know, <laughs> it's going to get really awkward for people. You know. So I thought about it. I thought, no, nah, I should at least give a heads up. So 20 minutes before I went out, I said, hey, Arthur, come here. I want to tell you something. I said, I left my iPad on a plane. I have no idea what I was going to, you know, what I was going to do. But here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to improv my, my talk. However, I'm going to open it up a little different. And I told him what I was going to do, and he looked at me and he goes, "Are you comfortable with that?" <laughs> I said, "I've been pretty comfortable making, you know, making people hate me for 30 years. I'm I'm okay with that part, but what I wasn't sure of is how that audience was going to react. You know, when re- wrestling fans come to an arena, they're kind of conditioned. It's like a Pavlovian response, like Pavlov's dog. You know, they they know they're supposed to cheer, they know they're supposed to boo, they know they're part of the show. That's just inherent, right? Well, with a TED talk, these are all like you know, real big thinkers and evolved people and they're looking for new ideas that'll change the world. They're not necessarily looking for some wrestling guy to come out and try to piss people off. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, you know what the hell, I'm going to do it. You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I went out and did it. And, you know, it was funny because if you go back and watch it, you know, I'm healing on them and they're laughing like I'm some kind of a smart ass comedian. Yeah. And I, you know, I said, well, I can't give it up. I got to keep driving. I got to keep driving. And then when I finally, you know, challenged a guy to come up and knock me out or take me off the stage and, you know, accuse some woman of having, you know, inappropriate fantasies about me, um, that's when I had him. And then it got real quiet. They didn't know what to do. And then that's when I busted out laughing and kind of let everybody off the hook. But there, there were some people there that really, you know, they they were they reacted to it. It was they all told me afterwards. Man, we thought you were nuts. We thought you maybe you've been drinking all morning or something. You know? <laughs> it was funny. There you go, um, Eric. I got I got a question for you. Kind of going back um, to um, we were talking about Jimmy Hart earlier, but I want to focus on Nick Patrick because that show and you guys were talking about how you were planting the seeds of Nick Patrick being part of the NWO. And over the years, I mean, we had different things. You know, you were involved in segments with Reverend Randy Anderson. Obviously, there was Little Nate. And it's very unusual because in WWE, they rarely say the referees' names. Yet, at this time, we were having the referees not just we know them, but they're heavily involved in the storylines. I was curious, whose idea was that to have the refs be more prominent? And why do we have it for almost every referee? You know, it's always awkward when somebody says, whose idea was that? Because people think, you know, ideas are like a, a singular, you know, activity. Mm-hmm. One person raises their hand and goes, hey, I have a really good idea. Let's make the reference <laughs> characters. And most ideas never really evolve that way. They really are a collaboration and an evolution. So somebody says, hey, let's get a berry-flavored soda water. And somebody down there will say, no, let's make it, you know, grapefruit. That, nobody has a grapefruit. You know, before you know it, you got fruit punch, right? Mm-hmm. It just evolves and changes. Um, 
I think generally speaking, the nature of our show kind of required that the referees become characters. Not required in the sense that somebody had a gun to our head, but required in the sense that everything that we were doing was story-driven and character-driven, including the referees. They're, they're prominent when you're watching the show, even though you may not know their name and so forth. And they're really, they should be kind of obscure until they're absolutely needed. That's a sign of a good referee, in my opinion. But it was my idea to, or yeah, I was instrumental in the idea, along with others, to you know look at the NFL, you know bad calls, controversy, you know the whole. If you go back and look at Nitro and so much of the successful stuff we did, was all about controversy. It, for me, it was how do I get people talking about my product, whether it was giving finishes away three minutes before the WWE Raw show went up or WWF at that time or calling out Vince McMahon, or walking out with a sign that says Vince McMahon fears ratings. All of those little smarmy things I did were designed to to get people to react and, and create buzz. And certainly having referees, again, something, as you just pointed out, you didn't normally see it. It, it, was, it, it didn't happen before. It was, you know, like the unwritten rule. And I thought, okay, well, so far, I've made a, a lot of good decisions about breaking the rules, busting the formula. You know, breaking the paradigm, as people like to say today. Um, we did everything differently than you're supposed to do it. And having the referees become part of the storyline was just one of many. Um, speaking of, like, breaking the formula, you – there's a lot of talk now about North Korea. Uh, collision in Korea, which happened in 1995, I guess it's a two-part question. One, do you think you and Conrad will ever want to do a show about that? And two, how can we get a copy of it? Because <laughs> it's not on the network. <laughs> You know, um, I, I don't know that, you know, when we do a show, typically they go an hour and a half to two hours, and we're really grinding, or I should say Conrad, mm. is really grinding for details, and, you know, the machinations of the process, and who did what to who, and, and all of that. There's just not a lot of um, story there to to really talk about. You know, I didn't put the event on. I... I you know, I I was instrumental in bringing Muhammad Ali and obviously the WCW talent over. That was a basis, you know, of my relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling. But beyond that, I didn't really have much to do with that show. So it would be hard for me to go into a lot of detail. I, I don't think it could carry a full two hours, to be honest. Fair. Uh, Eric, I have a question. <laughs> I, I, let me just start off by saying I'm not a big Melter fan either. But it does sometimes feel like he'll say something and you'll be like, no, no, nothing ever, ha nothing ever happened in regard to the Tatanka issue. Now, you may not have talked to him, but does that mean that maybe somebody else might not have talked to him? Maybe like a Terry Taylor and bringing him in? Um, you know, who knows? I'll, I'll, I'll cut Dave, I guess, en enough slack to say maybe. <laughs> but if, if Terry Taylor or anybody else would have had a conversation about coming in and being a part of the NWO to Tatanka, you know, that individual would have been had, they would have had to have been really freaking high. <laughs> what about what about just joining WCW in general? Oh, that may have happened. I mean, look, these guys all know each other mm -hmm. and they're friends. You know, when you, when you just because you work for a competitor, you know, the boys are still the boys. The talent still sticks together. You know, that's the fraternity. Um, and I could see you know, crossing paths, two guys crossing paths, somebody who maybe is an agent or somebody that works on a creative team and having a beer and said, hey, maybe we should, you know, try to get you in. Sure, that could have happened. Mm -hmm. But what Dave published, according to Conrad, was very specific mm -hmm. in, in that I was talking to Tatanka about coming in and being a part of the NWO. He didn't say, I don't know, somebody in the office mm -hmm. might have ran into Tatanka at an airport and over beers they talked about maybe working together. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that. It was a very specific uh, re report that was just like fiction. Come on. Well, while we're talking about Dave Meltzer, not to give him too much attention, but I'm curious uh, your opinion on this. Now that guys like you and Bruce Pritchard have your podcast and you're kind of outing him for a lot of the things he's reported over the years being BS and considering what happened a few months ago with his comments about Peyton Royce, do you think that Dave Meltzer is over? Do I think he's over as in... In a good oh, way? I meant, oh, I meant over in the, the non-wrestling way. In the, <laughs> yeah. in the canceled. This is a wrestling show. So <laughs> if you say over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over in the burnt toast kind of way? No, I yeah. don't think he's over like burnt toast. 
I think they'll all, you know, Dave's been doing it for a long time. To his credit, you know, I know I bust his balls often, um, but to his credit, you know, he's been doing this since what, the, the mid 80s, I guess? Yeah. Um, he may have started doing what he's doing before I even broke into the business in 1987. And I, you know, I'll give him props for that. Um, but I think now, not so much that Bruce and I are busting him out or Tony. Uh, or any number of other people, by that for that matter, but I think you know he'll always have his core people that really grew up reading his material. Conrad is a perfect mm-hmm. example. Right. You know, so many people have grown up through their early adulthood and their adulthood reading Dave Meltzer's stuff at a time when it was the only information you could get, whether it was make believe or wrong or a lie or you know poorly reported or whatever. Whatever it was, it was on on paper, and people read it, and they believed it. And and the, the the power that Dave has in in doing what he does is that when people, and this is human nature, people read things and they go, "Wow, that's the truth." Mm-hmm. No, it's not. <laughs> in many cases, it's not even remotely close to the truth. It's probably more closely related to fiction, bad fiction, but it doesn't matter. And and after people spend you know years, decades, in some cases, reading this stuff and thinking, wow, I've got inside knowledge that nobody else has. I have valuable information. I know something more about professional wrestling than my buddy that comes over and has beers on Monday nights, and I can <laughs> sound really smart because I get all my information from Dave Meltzer. Mm-hmm. Well, now you know, as as you put it, you know, guys are you know outing him. Um, I think he'll always have a core, but I think his audience is probably going to dwindle because there's just more and better and more entertaining ways to get that kind of content today. Absolutely. To take us us away from Dave Meltzer with one final question. Sorry. (laughs) Thank God. I'm tired of talking about him. You mentioned a lot about NWO merch in 1996 and how it's still being sold in the WWE shop. And I've heard this a couple different ways on Twitter, not just today, but overall. Do the do Holland Nash and you get any proceeds from WWE, or did that trademark all go away with the WCW sale? Ooh, that is a juicy one. I get none. Okay. The only the only royalties that I get are directly related to the period of time when I was in WWE, mm-hmm. as it relates to my name and likeness on merchandise. If I'm in a home video, there's a formula, and I get a certain percentage of that, or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Except for the network, we don't get anything for the network, which is cool. I knew that going in. Mm-hmm. I'm good with it. I'm not bitching. It just is what it is. Um, I can't tell you with any authority or honesty if Scott or Kevin either of them or both of them receive a royalty on that that's their dealings Mm -hmm. or would be their dealings with WWE and I have no inside knowledge about that I personally I've heard that story before and I find it difficult to believe Um, that would be that would have been a very rare exception on Vince McMahon's part because that wasn't you know the NWO was not Scott Hall's likeness or Kevin Mm. Nash's likeness or Hulk Hogan's the NWO was a separate distinct trademark that the W or WWE acquired in in their acquisition of WCW assets so there would be no reason to share in a percentage of that unless it was a part of a negotiation that I don't know about Absolutely. Wow, so much juicy stuff. And I know we would have millions of more uh, questions for you, Eric, but we're going to go ahead and let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Uh, Say hello to Mrs. B for us. We saw her walking around back there. Oh, I will. And uh, we sure have fun with you. I hope you did, too, and I hope we can do this again next week. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you. You, too. Bye-bye. Oh, wow, you guys. That was incredible. Oh, my gosh. We just got like 20 minutes with the Eric Bischoff. Yes, we Mind did. Mind blown. <laughs> and we're going to do it again next week. We are going to do it again next week. Make sure you guys uh, like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash after 83 weeks, and leave your questions there. You can always use hashtag after 83 weeks, and make sure that you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment. We'll shout you out while Eric is on the show. He will hear your name. I promise you. Thank you guys for joining us. Give us a quick plug. You got to Follow me on Twitter at Rosenberg, Instagram, the Rosenberg, and perosantis.com slash 
slash Christian Rosenberg. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, ghermoza, G-H-E-R-M-O-Z. If you are in the L.A. area next Wednesday, December 12th, uh, Rusting Pro Wrestling, I forgot the name of the... Turkey Mania. Turkey Mania, Turkey Mania too. <laughs> uh, if you are in town, please DM me, and I'll make sure you get a huge discount at the uh, uh, on tickets. Probably pretty much free. I, wow. I won't do that. I'm Steve Kaufman. You can find me on Twitter almost exclusively at Steve Kaufman. That is K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N. I run a lot of YouTube pages. More than I can say, but it includes this one, 83 Weeks. I tweet links. Look at the links. And we want all your feedback on this show. Please reach out to me at Christy Reports. And we will see you guys all back here again next week. They are breaking down Starcade 97. And, of course, Eric Bischoff will be back to answer your questions. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal.